and greetings to each of you in the Master's name this morning. The, I told Dana and traveling on the way to church this morning that if I treated the subject this morning properly, I should probably talk for three hours. I'm not planning to talk for three hours this morning. But I believe this morning that the message is something that we need. And my prayer is that it can be a message from God this morning. Last Sunday night, we had a message here on reverence from God. Brother Eugene King used an illustration that I found fascinating. Some of you may know the story of Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son, who was the son of King Saul. So he was in the line of, of King Saul. And David asked for asked his servants if there was any children or descendants of Jonathan, and they told him about Mephibosheth, and, and he asked or he called Mephibosheth to come into his presence. Now, what's interesting, and I, and I think I have this right, I didn't look it up, but just not too long previous to that, Saul had done some stuff to the Gibeonites that um, had created a problem for the people of Israel because Saul had violated a commitment that um, the Israelites had made with the Gibeonites, and they asked for Saul's sons, and seven of Saul's sons were executed by the Gibeonites, and David allowed that to happen. Um, and so here he's calling Mephibosheth, who's also a descendant of Saul. And so Mephibosheth comes to David, comes into his presence as a descendant of the, of the previous ruler. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was coming to David, he fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, Behold thy servant. So Mephibosheth didn't know why he was being called. For all he knew, this meant his life. In those days, the king... The king, the reigning king, would usually destroy all of the following or the descendants of the previous king if he wasn't in the same line. Sometimes if he was in the same line, he would still destroy all the descendants. So Mephibosheth comes in and he, he prostrates himself. What was he saying by throwing himself down on his face before David and saying, Behold thy servant. He was saying, I am completely vulnerable to you and I recognize that vulnerability. And in doing that, he gave David reverence. I noticed that when the police captured the man who had done the shooting in Bridgewater just recently, that they had him lay face down when they approached him. And there's a reason for that. When you're face down, you, you totally are immobile. You are completely vulnerable. It is your most vulnerable position. You can't see. You can't do anything with your hands. You can't do anything with your feet. If you're laying down on your back, you can defend yourself. But if you're laying face down, you cannot defend yourself. You're very, very vulnerable face down. 
Why do I bring this up? Well, I want you to, to draw to your attention the idea that to reverence God means to become completely vulnerable before Him. So if we're going to reverence God, we're going to have to become completely vulnerable to God to show Him proper reverence. The second thing that I want to bring up before I get to the message this morning is from two weeks ago when I preached on God and the thing I value most, I said that whatever is at the top of your value system is what serves the place of God for you. That's what orders your life. And so whatever you have at the top is what guides your life. And it establishes a system of value and everything else trickles down or pyramids down in, in some sense from that. And it guides the things that you do. You can turn now in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. I want to read three verses there. <clears throat> Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 25 and reading to verse 27. Now when great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also he cannot be my disciple. And, whoso and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So what's this idea of hating your family? What's God saying here? What's Jesus saying here? Well, Jesus isn't taking away what it says in Exodus about honoring your parents. Jesus isn't taking away what, he said, what He's saying about in Ephesians about loving your spouse or in Titus about loving your children. Rather, He's establishing it. So let's imagine for an instant that uh, we would read these verses somewhat differently. And instead of Jesus reading them, let's say that a whole multitude of people came in here this morning from Harrisonburg. And we're in these, filling these benches. And I said, except you hate your father and mother, your wife and your children, you can't be a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus had this big multitude of people following Him. And, and He turns to them and He gives them this message. What's He saying? What's He What's he telling them? And not only that, not only do you, are you going to hate, you know, do you have to hate your father and mother, your wife and your children, but you also are going to suffer. You're going to have to take up your cross. You're going to have to take a path of suffering to be a disciple of Jesus. Well, instead, the idea here, this, this word that hate, this word hate that Jesus used in the Greek has the idea of despise, but it also by extension has the idea of love less, to love less than. And so Jesus is saying, I have to be at the top. I have to be at the top for you to love properly for you to honor your parents properly, for you to love your wife properly, for you to love your children properly, I have to be at the top. 
You have to love them less because it's only through loving me the most that you can love the best. The only way that you can properly order your life. So when I was young, my dad has a lumber shop and my brother and I would dry stack lumber, which basically means that we would lay the boards out and then we put strips in between them and we would lay another row of boards out and put strips in between them and what that allowed air to circulate in between the boards and dry them out. It's called air drying. And then if you go to the next level, you go to kiln drying. And kiln drying is when you put it in a heated area and, and bake the rest of the moisture out. But you can take, uh, I don't know what lumber starts at moisture-wise when it's rough cut, fresh sawn, but you can take it down to about 11 or 12% by air drying. And that's a long ways down in comparison to where it starts. So we would do this and, and we'd, you know, you'd start out low and you'd work your way up and the, the more lumber that you had, the higher your stock would get. And sometimes we'd have like of one particular type of lumber, we might have two or three stacks and we would stock the one up and let it dry and we'd start stocking another one while we were, while we were doing the first one. Well, these things would get pretty high and um, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 feet. And being young and, you know, full of ourselves, we would get done with, hand up the last board and slap it down. Whoever's on the top of the stack would just doop off the end of the stack. And as we got more bold and learned how to land and all that stuff, we were getting up 10 feet or so. We were just boop off the end of the stack. You hit the ground, bend your knees and kind of roll and you were good to go. It's a lot quicker than climbing down the back. Well, daddy saw us doing that. And he said, you boys better quit that. You're gonna mess up your knees. Guess what? When I get the flu, my knees hurt. My knees are damaged. And I'm pretty sure that's part of the reason why. Now, fortunately, I listened to what my dad said. And I'm not saying I quit completely. I should have quit completely. But I didn't, but I respected that to a certain level. Like I recognized I didn't want to damage my knees. Now, it wasn't particularly what I wanted to hear because me and my brother kind of had this thing going where it was kind of a competition. And, you know, we like to see, well, you won't jump from that high. You know, and down we go. But it wasn't particularly what we wanted to hear. But it was more important to him because he cared about us. It was more important to him to tell us what was true than what we wanted to hear. And you have to have the truth has to be more important than what you want to hear. And so you have to have God at the top to organize that truth so that you can tell your loved ones what's most important. So these three verses are the context of the message this morning. And we're going to spend some more time here in these latter verses, but we're not going to do that right now. I have some trepidation about the message this morning because there might be somebody here this morning that says, you know, I can't do it. This is too much. You set the bar too high. So Jesus had a rich young man come to him and said, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it says that Jesus beholding him loved him. And then he told him something that was very difficult and the young man turned and walked away. 
And beholding you this morning, I love you. My message this morning is going to have some difficult things in it. So I ask you the question this morning, if you were trying out for the Olympics, or if you wanted to participate in the Olympics, and specifically in the high jump, which is the high bar that I mentioned earlier, and you could clear five feet, and you came to me and you said, you know, I want to participate in the Olympics, I can clear five feet, and I said, that sounds good enough to me, go for it. That's a pretty high jump. For me, that's a pretty high jump. And so you bought the plane ticket and you went to the Olympic trials and you got totally humiliated by people that could jump two and a half feet higher than you. Found out there's, did a little bit of research on that just to see how high Olympic jumpers could jump. Over seven and a half feet, most of the men. There's one guy, interestingly enough, Emilio from Cuba, is the only man that ever cleared eight feet. But upper sevens is where what the men can clear in the high jump. So would I, would I do you a service by setting the bar too low? No, I wouldn't do you a service. I actually cost you something. I'll give you the title of the message this morning. Who dares to say he believes in God? Who dares to say he believes in God? Do you believe in God this morning? What does it mean to say this little phrase, I believe in God? Is it possible that we become so accustomed to hearing it that we take it too casually? that we take what it means too casually. And I need this message myself. And I think we as a church need it. And I believe that conservative Anabaptism in the U.S. in America needs this message desperately. What does it mean to say, I believe in God? Psalm 8 verse 1 says, O Lord, and that, O oh Lord, there is the Jehovah, the self-existent, eternal one. And then it says, our Lord. And that word means the sovereign controller, the master. O oh Lord, our Lord. How excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set, the glory, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest steal the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? So from the infinity of the universe, and just to give you some thoughts about the infinity of the universe, the Closest star to our own is a mere 24,984,092,897,479 miles away. 4.2 light years. 4.22 or 4.24, something like that. And that's one 
of 100,000 million stars in our galaxy. And there's, that we know of, somewhere around 100,000 million galaxies. Twenty-four trillion, almost twenty-five trillion miles to the nearest star, and that's one of how many? That's one. Of, okay, so to the tiny cell from the expanse of the universe to the tiny cell, approximately thirty-seven point two trillion cells make up your body. Now we throughout, you know, you hear about the national debt, you know, trillions of dollars. Do you have any idea how much money that is? And I, I tried to get a feel for how much, how much that was. A million, a million of those cells die every second and are replaced. A million is a big number. But it's not anything like what a trillion is. So just to get an idea about that, so let's, let's think about counting at a number of seconds, at a rate of a number of seconds. So you say, well, I can count faster than that. Well, you can until you get up to about 1,000, and then you're going to slow down pretty rapidly because once those numbers start getting big, it takes a while to say the number. So if you're going to count, we're, we're being generous by saying a number of seconds. One million would take you 11 and a half days, nonstop counting, no breaks, one number every second. A million would take you 11 and a half days. A trillion would take you 31,709.79 years. Not days, years to count to a trillion. So I looked up what a million dollar, I'm not sure if they were dollar bills or hundred dollar bills, were laid out and they were about like a floor mat. So like the mat out here by the door is the one that I thought about. It was about that size. It was a million dollars. And comparatively, a trillion dollars looked like it would have been about the size of Costco. Okay? Does that give you a little bit of an idea about the difference between a million and a trillion? So, to count the cells in your body would take 1,179,604.188 years to count the cells that make up your body. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? We're talking about what it means to say, I believe in God. Hebrews tells us that not only, not only did, that, did God get that started, not only do we believe that God created that, but Hebrews 1 tells us that through Christ He is currently upholding all things by the word of His power. So if you wanted to talk about quantum physics and what keeps this solid desk solid, then we could talk about something upholding the universe. 
What I'm trying to get you get to this morning is that the God of heaven is not the big man in the sky. The God of the Bible is not the man upstairs. The God of the Bible is so far beyond that concept that that doesn't do him justice. That's far too casual of an idea about who God is. There is no one and nothing like Him. About two and a half years ago, I went through somewhat of a struggle with my faith. And it had to do with the fact that God became so big. When I thought about how big the universe was and how big God would have to be to create that universe, that He almost became impersonal to me. And I began to struggle with, do I really, do I really believe in God? But there was something that God brought me to. And that was the personal touch that He had had on my life. And as I looked at the personal touch that He had on my life, so yes, He is a God that, this, that is this big. And yet he has a personal touch on my life. And I was convinced by that personal touch that he was real. And that I did believe in him. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good. Gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. That's from Acts 14. And then from Acts 17, God who made the world and everything in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He worshipped with men's hands as though He need anything, since He gives to all life and breath in all things. So to believe in the God of the Bible is to believe that the breath that I draw, the life that I live, is given to me by God. A personal touch. He made me. And He keeps me going. Day by day. And He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings so that they should, so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for Him and find Him Though He is not far from each one of us, He is near. Even though He's out there, He's that big, He's also near. Right by each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your poets have said, and he's referring to the Greek poets, for we are his, also His offspring. An eternal, almighty being who is intimately interested in the very fact that you are alive and he, he is interested in the intimate aspects of your life. That is the God of the Bible. Do I believe in God?
Well, if I believe in a God like that, if I come to belief in a God like that, it's going to change everything. Because He's involved in everything. So the first thing we need to do is go back to Luke 14 and pick up where we left off at verse 27. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who came against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, every one of you does not So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its savor, how will it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So we need to count the cost. What's the cost going to be if we believe in God? Have I counted the cost and made my decision? To leave, to believe means to leave behind everything. Jesus makes that completely clear. Whosoever of you who forsakes not all that he has cannot be my disciple. Verses 34 and 35 show the opposite side. Do you aspire to be good? Salt is good. But if it's lost its seasoning, what are we going to do with it? We're going to throw it out because it doesn't have value. Every investment has a positive and a negative. If you invest in this thing, you will reap the rewards of the investment. If you choose not to invest, you cannot reap the rewards of the investment. So Jesus is saying, step back and evaluate and look at where do I want to go with life? Do I want to go with God? Do I want to give up everything to go with God? Or do I want to retain what I am and try to keep what I have for myself? Do you dare to say you believe? If you do, it means that you have recognized the cost, you've weighed the options, and you have actively committed yourself to going the whole way with God. Is that where your heart is this morning? Now turn to Romans chapter 11.
I'm going to read verses 32 to 36. And this is this, and I'll give you a little bit of the context here. The context here is, is three chapters of discussion about the relationship between God and the Israel and Israel and the Gentiles. And so that's a pretty broad context, but that's somewhat of the context here. And verse 32 says, For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For as no, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. So God says that as he looks at the, both the Jews and the Gentiles, his conclusion is that all of them are in unbelief. But his purpose is that he might have mercy upon all. That he might have mercy upon all. And then verses 33 to 35 talk about, so we've been talking about God's creative ability and His intimate interest in us. But now we're talking about the wisdom of God that far exceeds our capacity. We can't think at the level that God thinks. We can't think the breadth and depth and height that God thinks. His wisdom is so far beyond us for through Him, for of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. That is the God of the Bible. All things. And then verse 36, that all things, those all things are centered around Him and exist to show His goodness. So to believe is to accept that even though there is so much beyond my comprehension that I believe that the purposes of God are good. That ultimately His purposes are good. And then that takes us to chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Therefore, because of, because of this active mercy of God that He wants to bring out into the world, I beseech you, brethren, because of His mercy, that you present your bodies, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So to believe in God's goodness also demands a sacrifice 
of your body, of you, of who you are, because of who He is. How is this different from forsaking all? What's well, different in the sense forsaking all is leaving behind things. It's, it's not doing. But giving yourself in a sacrifice is engaging in the purpose of God. So it's the doing aspect. Notice the end of verse 2. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God has a purpose for you. If you believe, then your life must be engaged in the purposes of God. And it's not a singular, that's not the right way to say it. It's not engaged partially it's a total a sacrifice is a complete giving it's also a voluntary thing you are giving your sacrifice it's something that you are engaging in you're actively doing actively living for the purpose of God. <clears throat> Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. I was kind of jealous of John this morning. <clears throat> He's preaching through the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is an absolutely brilliant book. I mean, brilliant. And we believe that God's the author. So what surprise is that? But the connection that the author makes between the Old Testament and the New Testament and the way he just peels back the wrapper and says, look, right here it is. Right here it is. is just amazing. But I'm reading a bigger portion than what I intended to read. I actually came to this passage with the intent of going to chapter 11. And as I started to get into the context, I started to go back verse after verse after verse after verse. And finally, I had to stop at 19 because I knew it was way too much material. But we'll start reading there. We're going to read the passage and I'm going to move through it fairly quickly. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another to, in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now I'm going to stop there and go back to verses 19 through 21. So where it talks about the holies there, it's talking about the holiest of holies in the tabernacle. That was where the presence of God was. And it's saying, since we have boldness through the blood of Jesus to enter into that 
place. We have boldness to enter into the very presence of God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. The presence of this God that I've been describing this morning. Then verse 22 says there's two things that are important. Let us draw near with a true heart. A true heart is an honest heart. It's a heart that's not kidding about where I am. It's a heart that's saying, God, this is where I am. And I open myself up to you. We're talking about somewhat about that forsaking all and about that vulnerability of reverence. Opening ourselves up to God in a true heart with honesty. If you're not honest with God, you won't get anywhere with Him. And then there's another way that we draw near, and that's in full assurance of faith. Completely assured of who He is. And we'll get more to that later. But full assurance of faith. Complete confidence. Verse 23 says, let us hold fast. So there's something that we've got to do. We've got to get a handle on this thing. We've got to get a grip on it. The kind of grip that doesn't let go. Let us hold fast. The profession of our faith without wavering. Without looking around and saying something else might be better. I need something else besides this. Those who believe don't say I need something else besides this. Not in a God of the magnitude that we're talking about this morning. And we're to help each other. Why is that? Because we need each other. We need each other to help each other to see that God. That's part of the reason why the church is so important. Because without the church, you will not get the full picture of God the way you will with the church. So not forsaking the assembling ourselves together. Okay, I'll start reading again at verse 26 and read down to 31. Sorry, 26 to 31. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do we suppose will be thought worthy, will he be thought worthy who has trampled, under, trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I heard some teaching on this verse this past week, some messages I was listening to, and they were really powerful. It was really powerful. How do we understand these verses? If we go on sinning willfully after we receive a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What does that mean? The writer of the Hebrews brings that out of the context of presumptuous sin in the Old Testament. 
If someone sinned presumptuously in the Old Testament, there was not a sacrificial provision made for that person. He was to die without mercy. He was to be killed because of the effect of that sin on the people. And he's comparing that to if we go on sinning willfully after we receive a knowledge of the truth. And if we, as we look at the whole scope of the Old Testament, we see God being rich in mercy and not applying this, but rather calling people time and time again to repent, to repent, to repent, to turn from their sin, to turn back to Him. And so I don't believe these verses are saying that if we sin willfully, we don't have an opportunity to repent. But what I am saying is that brothers and sisters, if we sin, if we go on sinning willfully, we have to repent. And there's another thing that I think is in this passage that we need desperately and we're losing. And that is a recognition of the seriousness of sin. We have got to get a grasp on the seriousness of sin. If the old covenant said that you died without mercy, if you presumptuously sinned, how much worse punishment for the sacrifice that God made of His very Son. And you count that as nothing and say, I'm just going to go out and live in sin. I'm just going to go ahead and do it because I want to. Brothers and sisters, I tell you what, I needed to read this passage. I need this passage. I need to get a grip on the seriousness of what it means for me to give in to my flesh and just sin and just go on sinning. And I didn't come to this passage to preach about that. But I believe the Spirit of God took me to this passage this morning. I had no intention of going there because I went there for chapter 11. And we're going to get there. But I think this is a big part of belief. If we believe in a holy God that has so much control of all the worlds, all things are for His glory, then that's going to speak into the areas of sin in my life. And when it does, what am I going to do about it? How serious am I going to be? It made me think about Jesus' words where He says, the kind of seriousness that you cut off your hand that offends you. And I can't say, I don't believe, we can honestly say, I believe and take a casual approach to sin. We cannot do that. Start reading again at verse 32. But recall the former days which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you have compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of our goods, of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. I'm going to stop there again. Lost my place in my notes. These people had lost a lot of things because they had become believers 
Because they had chosen to say, I believe, they lost things. They lost property. They lost respect. But what were they doing it for? They were doing it to gain something spiritually. They said, there's something in the spiritual world that I'm willing to give these other things are to count them as meaningless. And Paul, sorry, not Paul. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. But the writer of Hebrews is calling them back to remember the time when they experienced a work of God in their life and they gave up those things. And he's calling them to use that as a foundation on which to grow and build. And let's see what else he says. For yet a little while, Oh, sorry. One thing I wanted to catch. that um, After you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. So we do the will of God looking forward to the promise. There's a promise coming. Okay? A reward. This is not a meaningless thing. This isn't a meaningless sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that has a vision of a reward. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. We are of those who believe. The just shall live by faith. You know what that means? That means that the life of the just person is ordered by his faith. He shall live by his faith. So he believes that it's important based on the word of God, his belief that God orders life. And so I obey what God says on the basis of my faith that God orders life. And when, when I believe that and I set my house in order according to the priorities of God, then there's going to be a reward. That's what it means to believe. That's what it means to have faith. We'll, get, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But to believe means to move forward continually in that direction based not on my reasoning, but on the reasoning of God, on the will of God. So let's move forward now to verse 6 of chapter 11. But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he that comes to God must believe that He is... And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So we're talking about a faith that acknowledges the existence of God. But also believes that God is God supplies the needs of the person who is following him. He is a rewarder. He's not passive. He's active. He's actively Working into your life as you follow Him, He gives into your life. And so chapter 11 is full of people who did things. Who actively did things because of their faith. It's not so much that they acknowledged their faith. They did acknowledge their faith. But they lived their faith. The just shall live by faith. His life will be ordered 
by what he believes. It's basically saying what James says. Faith without works is dead. James 2.17 Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Well, what does that mean? That means that you can acknowledge God, but if it doesn't affect your life, it has no benefit. It has no value in some sense. So the, but the passage in James is really interesting because it's not drawing a line between the people who do and don't acknowledge God's existence. It's drawing the line between the people how people choose to respond to the knowledge of God's existence. Belief is not defined by what we say. So I'm bringing you back to the title. We say we believe in God. Do we believe in God? I was thinking about this message. And I was really challenged with that question in my own heart. And there was only one way that I felt like I could stand before you this morning and say, I believe in God. And that one way is through the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life. If I do not have the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life, I cannot authentically say, I believe in God. I see I missed a reference here. Luke chapter 24, I believe. Where Jesus says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Then if you move forward to Acts chapter 2, in verse 1 it says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, Ye have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then moving forward to Acts 1.8, But ye shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. You see, that idea of a witness is a representation. You will be a representation of me, but the only way for that to be possible is through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, living in us. And then if you go to Acts 2, 36, you see Peter preaching a, well, Peter's preaching a sermon in Acts 2 and he concludes his message with this. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, 
what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, which is turn the other way, turn around, turn your path, reject the way you're going and go the different way, go God's way. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sin, of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. That promise, that opportunity is open to every person Amen. to believe in God. And I say this morning that to say I believe outside the Spirit of God is a presumptuous claim because it's saying that I have within me the capacity to be what God wants me to be. And we don't have that capacity. And I also add this morning, and this came from Mark's devotional, that unless we are living in submission to the Holy Spirit currently, it's a presumptuous claim. To say I believe with the Spirit of God is to accept accountability and responsibility. And that responsibility and accountability touches every aspect of your life. All 37.2 trillion cells of your body and everything else in between. And I believe our failure as churches arises really from a failure to believe. If we want to be successful here as a church, we're going to have to believe. So may God help us to fulfill the calling that He has on our lives. And may we say with the Father who brought His child to Jesus, and Jesus said, all things are possible for him who believes. He said, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May we cry out to God to help our unbelief. God bless you, brothers and sisters.